I'm Caleb Brown, host of the Cato Daily Podcast, and I'm taking this time to ask you during the month of December to financially support the Cato Daily Podcast and the broad mission of the Cato Institute to advance individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor and support our efforts. This is the only time of year when I make this request, so I'm adding a little something. If you support Cato to the tune of $1,000 or more, I'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate someone else to receive the benefits of that donation. Just visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. And thank you. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, December 10th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. There are broadly two camps of educational freedom advocates, according to Cato adjunct scholar Jason Bedrick, the libertarians who generally believe in a freewheeling educational marketplace, and those who are somewhat more concerned with equality of access, which leads to all manner of interventions. Bedrick is co-author of the new book, Religious Liberty and Education. We spoke last month. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no uh, school choice system where anybody can do whatever they want. Uh, every every system has some level of regulation. Uh, e- even even states that don't have school choice programs, there are regulations on on private schools. Um, but among supporters of educational choice, I'd say there there really there there are two camps, broadly speaking. Uh, so one camp is the libertarian camp, which I'm, I'm sure listeners to the Cato podcast are quite familiar with that uh, support the maximum amount of freedom possible when it comes to educational choice. Uh, But there is another camp of supporters of educational choice that uh, we call in this book chapter uh, equalitarians. And essentially what the equalitarians believe is that uh, school choice is great. We want to give people access to a wide variety of options, but we want to make sure that those options are high quality and we want to make sure that people have access. Uh, and so in order to guarantee access and quality, it requires substantial government intervention. So it will have the money follow the child to the school of their choice, but uh, private schools that participate in the school choice programs must have open enrollment. Because if you if you don't mandate open enrollment, then um, disadvantaged kids might not actually get access to those schools. And we need to have price controls because if they can't afford tuition, uh, then you know they don't really have access. And so we have to tell those schools that if you take the voucher, you can't charge more than the amount of the voucher. Uh, and we have to make sure that the schools are quality. And so we need to make sure that the schools are accredited. Uh, and even accreditation is not enough. We have to mandate the state test. Uh, because we want to have apples to apples comparisons uh, among all of the different private schools. And so what ends up happening is they layer uh, regulation upon regulation in these programs. What does the evidence say about these different kinds of systems? Right. So in our chapter, we we say that it's actually a myth that you need um, these sorts of regulations to guarantee quality and access. Um, And what we do is... uh, uh, Lindsay Burke of the Heritage Foundation and I do two case studies, one of uh, Florida's tax credit scholarship program, uh, which is the largest private school choice program in the country, and one of the Louisiana voucher program. Uh, and this is to prove essentially that these regulations are neither necessary to achieve the desired outcomes of access and quality, nor sufficient to achieve those outcomes. Uh, In short, 
Florida, which uh, doesn't have any of those equalitarian regulations, has a very high level of access and quality. Uh, on the flip side, Louisiana, which has all of those types of equalitarian regulations, uh, actually has very limited access and uh, actually quite low quality. What you're saying is actually pretty counterintuitive to, I would imagine, most people. Yes. Uh, so most would expect that it would go the other direction. And certainly there are lots of different factors. And so, you, you know, when you're, you, when you're, we're not making any causal claims in this piece. Uh, but what we are showing is that, look, the, the, the regulations, let's start with Florida. Um, Florida, like I said, does not have the equalitarian regulations. And yet you've got 100,000 students participating in the program. They come from very low income families, uh, an average of about $25,000 per family. Uh, and uh, 70% of them are non-white. Uh, additionally, Florida State University has shown that uh, it's the students that are lower performing that are entering the program. So sometimes you hear, oh, well, if the private schools can choose which students they accept, then you're, they're going to engage in, in quote unquote creaming, right? The students that are the best students are going to go to the private schools and the students that are not as good are going to be left at the public schools. Uh, actually, it seems that the reverse is true. Students that are doing uh, well in their assigned district school, the parents tend to leave them there. But if the student is really struggling, uh, then the parents have a greater incentive to move them out. And so those students that are entering the scholarship program for the first time are scoring on average, um, considerably below their demographic peers when they accept the scholarship. And yet, after a few years, they are performing not only um, as well as their peers, they're actually performing at the national average, which means that they are um, their scores are exceeding their demographic peers. Uh, the Urban Institute also found that uh, scholarship students uh, have a, there's a 15% increase in college enrollment among scholarship students versus non-scholarship students of the same demographics. Uh, and that the increase is actually larger for students who have been in the program longer. So among students that have been uh, receiving a scholarship for four or more years, there's actually a 46% increase in the likelihood that they attend college. We're in the middle of a very difficult time for education. And uh, I think a lot of states uh, are probably in a better mind to uh, experiment. That is, we've been engaged in an, sort of an involuntary experiment in schooling for many, many months now. Um, what does that mean with respect to, uh, or, or should I say, what should state lawmakers and people who are making decisions about what a broadened range of school choice options, what should they know about uh, the kinds of uh, regulation that they should or should not impose? Well, they shouldn't impose the qualitarian type regulations that we see in Louisiana. Um, Louisiana has all of those qualitarian regulations, and yet they have failed to guarantee either access or quality. Uh, as a matter of fact, in 2016, they became the first voucher program to show negative uh, test score results, uh, and uh, those test those those negative results persisted over several years. Um, now, 
this came as quite a shock because all the random assignment studies before that on voucher programs across the country found neutral to positive results from receiving a voucher. So it was it was shocking that they were receiving, uh, uh, you know, that these these students participating in the voucher program uh, actually seemed to suffer academically. Uh, but it actually shouldn't have been too surprising. Uh, because there were so many regulations on the program, only about a third of private schools in the state were willing to participate. Uh, so these uh, the, these regulations that were supposed to guarantee access actually failed to guarantee access to you know a majority of the schools in the state. Uh, by contrast, uh, in Florida, almost all of the schools were participating, uh, but in Louisiana they were not. Uh, and there was a difference between the, the schools that were and were not participating. Uh, so uh, those schools that chose not to accept vouchers uh, had increasing enrollment on average before the voucher program was enacted. Uh, by contrast, those schools that were willing to accept the vouchers had declining enrollment on average before the program was enacted. In other words, families were already selecting away from those schools that uh, participated in the program. Those schools that were doing well, that were able to maintain or increase their enrollment, they said, we don't need to jump through all these regulatory hoops. But those schools that were bleeding families, that families were saying, we're going to leave these schools, uh, they were willing to jump through those hoops. In other words, this is a proxy for quality. It was the lower quality schools that were more likely to participate. And then you ended up with these results. And so uh, sort of counterintuitively, the evidence suggests that the regulations intended to guarantee access and quality not only fail to do that, but may actually have the opposite effect. Uh, this shouldn't be too surprising. Uh, the, the godfather of educational choice, Milton Friedman, once said that the society that puts equality before freedom will end up with neither. The society that puts freedom before equality will end up with a great measure of both. Uh, and what's true of equality is also true of educational quality. Uh, the society uh, or the school choice program that tries to put access and quality first before freedom uh, may end up with neither, but the, the school choice program that puts freedom first will end up with a great measure of access and quality as well. Jason Bedrick is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.